0: Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. The Lord knew that there would be an endless supply of things in this life we would be anxious about. For example, our health, finances, safety, and security. For this reason, Jesus gives us the cure for anxiety in the Gospels. Specifically, Christ lays out said remedy in the Sermon on the Mount. Notably, although this is likely Christ's most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount is actually one of five great discourses in Matthew. The first is the sermon itself in Matthew chapters 5-7. to The consequent discourses are in chapters 10, 13, 18, and then in 24-25. The scriptures that we will be looking at today in Matthew 6 contain ethical admonitions. Here, Jesus emphasizes that we are to be heavenly-minded, not earthly-minded. This has practical applications for everyday life, one of which is not to be a worrywart. Now, before we dive into our verses, Matthew 6, 25-34, let us be mindful of the context. What was Jesus saying before He explains the cure for anxiety, and why was He saying it? If we back up to Matthew six sixteen to 24 Jesus explains that true treasure is not of this world, but rather that which has eternal value. The Lord does not rebuke treasure accumulating, but instead admonishes building up earthly treasure at the expense of heavenly ones. In verses 19-23, to Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness." So if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? What Jesus was saying was, be mindful what holds a deed to your heart. Be mindful where you set your eyes. Then in verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Immediately following this verse, the Lord begins talking about anxiety and the cure for it. In verse 25a, Jesus says, For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life. Now, wait a minute, for what reason? Jesus is telling us why he's about to say something, and that reason is given in what Jesus said immediately before that a person cannot serve two masters. It is for this reason that Jesus says, do not be worried about your life. So why are we not to worry? Because worry about earthly things flows from unbelief, which begets double-mindedness. Those who earnestly trust God for eternal spiritual things can certainly trust Him for earthly temporal things. If you can trust Him for the greater, you can certainly trust Him for the lesser. And so, in Matthew 6.25, Jesus is laying a foundation that says, Kingdom living is not properly done by those who are double-minded, for you cannot serve God and something else. It's one or the other. The anxious person has their eyes fixed on something other than God. This not-God is always changing and uncertain, so it makes sense that they are anxious because they are trusting in something unreliable. Even more, double-mindedness cripples function as anything works better with undivided attention. Accordingly, before Jesus begins to expound further, He begins to touch upon the issue of faith and what a person truly trusts in. Keep this nugget in mind because we will come back to it later. Here now is the Lord's Discourse on Anxiety in verses 25-34. to 34. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the sky, that they do not sow nor reap, and gather crops into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more important than they? And which of you, by worrying, can add a single day to his lifespan? And why are you worried about clothing? Notice how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor, nor do they spin thread for cloth. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith." Do not worry then, saying, What are we to eat, or what are we to drink, or what are we to wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be provided to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus begins by saying, do not be worried about food, drink, or clothing. It's not to be missed that the Lord says, do not be worried, three times in verses 25-34. to The point is that we ought to listen carefully and heed God's words when the Lord thinks it wise to repeat himself. Do not be worried is a negative imperative, hence if we do worry, then we sin by disobedience. What is clear from this command is that we are not free to respond emotionally or how I please in response to felt needs. Thinking and acting biblically means following the counsel God provides in His Word. Now certainly, food, drink, and clothing are all necessary for life. This is crucial to take note of because needs are distinct from wants. You may want a luxury home or to be rich, but you don't need those things and God is not making a promise to His children about felt wants. Certainly, it is not sinful for any person to be concerned about and desire basic things that will sustain their natural life. In fact, the person who has no concern over basic necessities is detached from reality and individual responsibility. What Jesus was speaking to is the human propensity for our hearts to be carried away and dominated by earthly concerns, making peripheral matters to be our ultimate focus. Accordingly, when Jesus commands us not to worry, what does he mean exactly? Worry comes from a Greek word that means to be anxious about or to have a care that is distracting. This worry is apprehension about the future, so it is worry that is always directed forward. The person who worries is so preoccupied that they take their eyes off what is most important. They are thus pulled apart into pieces, and each piece is moving in a different direction. Just imagine someone tossing and turning in the middle of the night because they are thinking about what may happen in the morning. They think to themselves, what if this or what if that? Worry is self-focused, not God-focused. Thus, I begin to perseverate over questions like, what will I do? Or, how can I handle a situation? Because a person is unable to secure any immediate clarity and they have no control over the future, their anxiety continues to fuel more distraction, which worsens the anxiety. As Matthew 6.23 says, a bad eye leads to a body full of darkness, which can manifest as extreme physical symptoms such as heart racing, a sense of impending doom, rapid breathing, and the feeling as if you are about to pass out. After Jesus tells us what not to do, do not be worried. He then tells us what to do, look at creation. He says, Don't you see how God cares for animals and flora? Are they not provided for? So, if God tenderly cares for the lesser things, will he not also provide for you, the greater? After all, if the Lord clothes the grass of the field with such splendor, will he not also clothe his children? We are sure he will. God made man so that when he sinned, he needed clothing. And the clothes that God gave to His children were far better than they could have made for themselves. The point is that in looking at creation, a godly-minded person sees the providence of God. They see that God faithfully provides for all of His creatures. And I must mention that it is no coincidence that Jesus' teaching here appears soon after He instructs His disciples on how to pray. See Matthew 6, verses 9 to 14. Praying for the Lord to give you daily bread comes from a heart that relies on the providence of God. A fruit of faith is prayer, and Christ's teachings in verses 25 to 34 is an expansion on the petition for daily provision. That is, a child of God must pray for things that he or she needs, like water, food, and clothing. In verse 30, Jesus arrives at the root of the anxiety problem. He says, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? As mentioned in their heart, the person who is anxious is ultimately concerned about themselves, not God. The sin of pride therefore plays a major role. Because the focus is the self, there is a lack of trust in the king. Consequently, because no one person is sovereign, they are ultimately anxious about their own inability to provide for themselves. Additionally, as a side note, this principle of human nature, trading faith for trinkets, helps to explain why people often give up things of a far greater value in order to alleviate their anxiety over life's basic needs. This unbalanced trade is a devil's bargain that many have taken throughout history. It is simply because people are anxious about life that they will gladly sacrifice something, whether it be freedom, money, or privileges, in order to calm their fears. Anxiety is the symptom, the lack of faith is the disease. This touches upon what I mentioned earlier, that no person can serve two masters, for in practice they only glorify one it is impossible for a person to consider both God and things of this world to be of first importance. For such a double-minded individual, they don't trust that the God of tomorrow will actually provide for them tomorrow. They doubt that the God who made the world will be there to create something for them. Consequently, trying to tackle the future about yourself is traumatic, so of course, people end up feeling stressed out. The sin of worry irrationally compels us to be concerned over things we have no control over, leaving many to feel totally out of control. Truly, people who are worry warts or anxious are sinners just like you and me, but they commit the specific sin of unbelief. And let me be sure to establish the fact that Jesus does not accuse the anxious of having no faith at all. He says, you of little faith. Little faith is not the same as no faith or being an unbeliever. Beloved, we are all broken people, and our individual brokenness will manifest in many different ways. Let no one walk away from this text thinking that if you are a true Christian, then you will not or cannot be anxious. What foolishness! A worryful Christian is imperfect because all true Christians are imperfect yet still beloved by God. After all, why else would the Good Shepherd comfort the anxious with His instruction? If anxiety is grounded in the sin of unbelief, what is the biblical solution? It's certainly not taking prescription drugs because pills only manage biological symptoms. They never deal with the spiritual sin of unbelief. Jesus provides two solutions to the anxiety problem. The first is spiritual, the second is practical. Again, in verses 31 to 34, Jesus says, Do not worry then, saying, What are we to eat, or what are we to drink, or what are we to wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be provided to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. To cure anxiety, God's solution is for us to first take off bad thinking and put on godly thinking. While we are commanded not to worry, we are commanded to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Meaning what? That we seek first everything of the kingdom and all the rest will come from the Lord Himself without anxiety. In other words, if you mind God's business, then He will mind yours. The good news for the Christian is that our earthly things are thrown in with the kingdom. Praise the Lord that His kingdom will fully come at some point in the future, yet He still makes provision for us today. Appropriately, a person who is kingdom-minded does not think less of themselves, but progressively thinks of themselves less. Why? Because they seek first the divine kingdom. This highlights a continual emphasis in the New Testament on the death of self in pursuit of God. We are enslaved to this world whenever its concerns and worries control how we think and act. True life, and therefore true freedom, can only be found when a person comes to the realization that the way in which we conquer this world and all of its baggage is when we reach the point where we can let it, the lesser thing, all go for the greatest thing, Christ. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24-26, If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses life for my sake will find it. For what good will it do a person if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what will a person give in exchange for his soul? To highlight this point of putting God first, consider Psalm 27. We don't know exactly when in David's life this psalm was written, but we do know it was composed in a season where David had trouble from adversaries, false witnesses, and violent men. His life was in immediate danger, and speaking in purely earthly terms, David had many reasons to worry. But what do we note about the psalm? That it starts with God. David does not start with his needs and problems. He doesn't begin with his presupposed anxiety or his sources of fear. He starts by seeking God first. The psalm begins by saying, The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom should I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life, whom should I dread? Consequently, the psalm in its entirety is saturated with expressions of confident trust in God. There was room neither for fear nor anxiety because David's heart was filled with faith. Hence, our great hope is that we do not serve an indifferent Creator, but He who is our Heavenly Father, who knows that we truly do need all these things. But the way He prescribed for us to get those things isn't by worrying about them, it is by focusing on Him. Beloved, if God made everything out of nothing, can He not also provide for you? The Bible opens by saying, "In the beginning God." Therefore, let each day of your life open in the same way. An heir of the kingdom will not die of starvation when he or she has bread from heaven. That was Christ's first cure for anxiety, seeking the kingdom first. In verse 34, he gives the second practical cure. Again, Matthew 6:34 says, So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Here's a crucial point not to miss. Jesus says, do not worry about tomorrow, meaning disobedient worry is qualified both by its self-centeredness and by what it's worrying about, the future. This why of worry pulls us apart into pieces, can cause our hair to fall out, and give us stomach ulcers. Because a man can worry about tomorrow, but he cannot do anything about it. In fact, the grand irony is, worrying tends to paralyze a person with inaction, action, meaning he is so distraught by tomorrow's troubles, he ends up doing nothing right now, which solves nothing. Consequently, all the worrying is a complete and total waste of time. Because all of his internal tension cannot be discharged in a productive way, it's no wonder he begins to unravel. Jesus asks in Matthew 6.27, And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? The Lord is essentially asking, what benefit is there to worrying? The implied answer is none. Worrying is both self-destructive and self-defeating. All the effects of worrying about the future are negative, which is why God commands us not to do it. There is nothing I can do about that which has not happened yet. There is nothing I can do about a reality that is not yet here. There is nothing I can do about that which may not even happen. Let us not forget that worry is sin. As the legendary biblical counselor Jay Adams once wrote, quote, Tomorrow always belongs to God. Tomorrow is in his hands. Whenever we try to take hold of it, we try to steal what belongs to him." End quote. The biblical conclusion is that we trust that the future lies in the hands of God, whom we trust. We are at peace knowing that the all-knowing, all-powerful God reigns over tomorrow, so why would we compete with omniscience by encroaching on his territory? When you trust God, you trust that whatever tomorrow brings, all things will work together for good for those who love the Lord. Romans 8.28 God's provided solution is that negatively, we do not worry about that which we have no control over. We, therefore, do not allow the future's potential difficulties to bother us in the actual present. Positively, the practical solution is that we do concern ourselves with what we do have a degree of control over, the present. Again, in Matthew 6.34, Jesus says, So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do you see what Jesus does here? He shifts where we are to focus our attention. So, when he commands us not to worry, that does not mean we stop being concerned or apathetic. The solution is not no concern, that would in fact be pathologic. The solution is refocusing our attention on right now because at the very moment, you have the ability, time, energy, space, and means to do something. While a child of God trusts the Lord for tomorrow, he or she is also aware that their father gave them the gift of right now. He expects us to use that gift responsibly. Now, before I move on, let's make sure we are clear about one thing. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 34, do not worry about tomorrow. There is nothing in the Lord's words that precludes thinking about tomorrow, considering for tomorrow, or planning for tomorrow. Remember that worry is a distracting care which is distinct from careful contemplation. In fact, the benefits of future planning are discussed in James chapter 4, verses 13-15. to That text says, "'Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit.'" Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow, for you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Furthermore, in Luke 14.28, when Jesus is teaching about discipleship, He implores His disciples to count the cost. In other words, He was advocating that His followers plan and consider before doing something. The point is that all of the Lord's servants should plan for tomorrow, but we are commanded not to worry. If God wills, then our plans may come to pass. Conversely, all of our planning may be demolished or radically changed because the Lord is sovereign. So what Jesus teaches us in Matthew 6 is that the key to living a worry-free, peace-saturated existence is to shift our energies first toward God and second toward taking care of our present troubles. Present concern begets action, and when we take steps in concrete reality toward concrete solutions, we get concrete results. We can do this confidently knowing such a way of life is in the will of God. Whenever a person trusts Christ and does everything that they can right now, they can lay their head on their pillow in peace when all their labors are finished. Someone may be asking themselves, but what if I can't actually do anything about my problem today? What if a relative just received a terminal diagnosis and I'm not a doctor? What if I heard there are layoffs happening at my job and I am in a low-level position with no seniority? Well, doing something does not always mean taking action without. It can also mean taking action within. What I mean by this is, one of the first things you can always do is change how you think about the current predicament. Consequently, something can always be done about today's problem, and even if everything around you stays the same, you can change. Sometimes, us changing is the point. If anxiety is rooted on belief, then our lack of faith feeds idolatrous thoughts. We thus put off our thoughts and put on the mind of Christ. So what are three things that any Christian can always do right now to put God first and seek his kingdom? How do we put on the mind of Christ? There are three applications. Application one, do meditate on God's word. Do not mull over your own thoughts. When you feel anxious, what typically happens is that a particular thought consumes your mind. As I mentioned, you think about something you can't control, which makes you worry, which ironically nudges you to brood over your thoughts even more, fueling more anxiety. You feel restless on the inside, yet even though you have all this nervous energy, you end up moving in circles. For some, they can't focus, can't sleep, and can't seem to break the loop playing in their minds. And when you hear this person speak, it's readily clear that their mind is being held captive by distracting cares. The solution, then, is not to mull over your own thoughts. If your head is full of toxic ideas, then you must replace those with godly ones. Hence, go straight to the scriptures and fill your mind with divine truth, not human speculations. If you think about foolishness, don't expect noble results. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, think about these things. We are transformed by the renewing of our minds, Romans 12, 1-2. Thus, what transforms an anxious person into a peaceful one is the Holy Spirit through the mediation by the word of God. Specifically, you can read a story of how God took care of someone in less than ideal circumstances – Joseph. You can read Jesus' instructions in Matthew on how not to be anxious. You can also read specific promises about how God intends to care for you. See Psalm 23.4 and 34.4, Isaiah 41.10, and 2 Timothy 1.7. Even if it means reading the same scriptures over and over again, the central idea is to meditate on the Lord and nothing else. Furthermore, what meditation on God will do is compel you to pray. After all, the Lord invites all of His children to speak to Him when they feel anxious so that we can roll away all of our cares unto God. Philippians 4, 6-7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and pleading with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Faith fuels prayer, and it is the same faith that can comfortably leave your prayer closet, resting the truth that, I told my Heavenly Father about it, and He will take care of it. Application number two, meditate on God's providence. In Matthew six twenty-five 25-34, Jesus directed our attention away from anxiety and toward divine providence. Hence, we should do the same. According to Theopedia, providence may be defined as, quote, the Lord's guardianship and care for His creatures and creation. Any manifestation of such care may be described as providence, end quote. We can consider God's power and preservation, cognizant that no creature has the power to preserve itself. God truly does put soul in our life, Psalm 66.9, and evidence of His providential care is everywhere. He causes the rain to fall, grain to grow, animals to graze, and babies to be born. Every moment of every day, there is proof that all of life is sustained by His divine hand. Will he not then continue to do what he has faithfully been doing? Meditating on God's providence is helpful because it reminds us that God has already and is providing. Many doubt him for the future because they've forgotten about the past and the present. This is a quote from A.W. Pink's The Attributes of God. The author is writing about God's faithfulness, but I think his point is well applied to our current discussion. Pink writes, quote, God is faithful in preserving His people. God is faithful by whom ye are called unto the fellowship of His Son. First Corinthians 1:9. In the previous verse, promise was made that God would conform unto the end His own people. The apostles' confidence in the absolute security of believers was founded not on the strength of their resolutions or ability to preserve, but on the veracity of him that cannot lie. Since God has promised to his Son a certain people for his inheritance to deliver them from sin and condemnation and to make them participants of eternal life and glory, it is certain that he will not allow any of them to perish." Pink draws the reader's attention to Christ as the ultimate example of God taking care of his children. Accordingly, this brings me to my third and final application. Application 3. Meditate on Christ Beloved, the hope that God gives us is that Christ makes it possible for us to live a worry-free and anxiety-free existence. Let us not forget that in Matthew 6, 25-34, God was standing directly in front of people and telling them, don't worry. In the context of what the rest of the New Testament says, it is clear that because of their sin, all people should be anxious about if they are right with God. Accordingly, the unspoken lesson in Christ's words is that His sheep should not be anxious because He is the peacemaker between God and man. If you are in Christ, that means your eternity is secure based upon His life, death, and resurrection. Therefore, because of Jesus, do not worry about earthly things when heaven is already your inheritance. Of course, this does not minimize the reality that creatures on earth will have many earthly needs. This is why God also provides the means by which our worries are eradicated by casting our cares on Him 1 Peter 5:7. The good news is that for those who are in Christ, God worries for us. This means we have reasons to be at peace because heaven and earth are in God's hands. When God worries for us, that does not mean He has sleepless nights. It means that we let God quote-unquote worry about what will be, knowing that He holds the future in the palm of His hand. We simply focus on what is. We do that humbly cognizant that we only have a finite degree of control over today. In contrast, the Lord is control of everything all the time. Therefore, our concerns about the not-yet-future are fully satisfied in our precious Lord. Christ is God's King who sits on His throne because all of reality is under His command, Psalm 2. We find peace then, knowing that the Lord has already finished the end of tomorrow before it becomes our today. We thus live not in a perpetual state of worry, but of Holy Spirit-inspired peace.